welcome to This Girl Cam, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm talking to Kiva Valerie Gilroy, previously Global Head of Digital Health and Therapeutics for Merck, and now an independent advisor to pharma and life science companies. Kiva is a passionate advocate for patients' rights, a self-proclaimed science nerd and data enthusiast. Kiva focuses her work on how she can make life better for patients and enable a healthier population. It took just a couple of minutes chatting on the phone with Kiva to know this was an interview I wanted to do in person. So here we are. Kiva has flown over from her home in Germany. I've jumped on a train down to London and here we are ready to do this. So let's get going. Hello, Kiva. Welcome to the show. Hi, Liv. Thanks very much for having me. You are very welcome. This is a complete first for both of us, <laughs> as we were just saying. So I've never been in an actual real life recording studio before, and I don't think you have either, have you? Yes, but a very long time ago and as part of a school choir. Okay. <laughs> really not part it's of the same. <laughs> no, not quite the same, no. Okay, so to kick us off, Kiva, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So, really interesting question because I never quite know how to answer that. So, just a little bit about me. I'm from Northern Ireland originally, but I've lived abroad for almost 17 years now. I've spent that entire time primarily in the life science and pharma industry. I accidentally fell into pharma, to be perfectly honest with you. I didn't mean to do it. It just kind of got me on the way past and I thought, oh yeah, okay, I'll have a go at that. But I moved, I left Belfast after I finished my undergraduate degree in genetics and I moved to Basel in Switzerland to take up a postgraduate research fellowship at the Friedrich Miescher Institute. And essentially, I spent an entire year in a lab realizing that I love science and I don't love the lab. And that's really where I thought, no, this is not really my thing. And I was very lucky that I met a really cool Irish lady in Basel. And I don't actually remember how I met her, but I she turned out she was head of a... a recruiting company and so she then ended up getting me into an interview with Fisher Clinical Services and as a project manager and I took on that role in the end and that was pretty much how I ended up in industry rather than in academia or in a lab setting so I went straight into the project management clinical development side of the life sciences and pharma industry and I haven't really looked back I think probably the best way to describe me is more of an opportunist really I have very short attention span and I like to be kept entertained and I get grumpy when I'm bored so I am really interested I'm lifelong learner I really can't stop learning and I love to to read and to learn more about what's going on so I've kind of just moved through the entire healthcare space into areas that really interest me so having gone from early stage research development and I'm talking polycomb genes, body segmentation genes, right at the very early stuff of my career in the early research, which has still never come to the light of day. So that still that still is a long time away from making it into the clinic through to the actual clinical development stuff. So the clinical trials, the development of diagnostic tests, and then into digital and data, which for me kind of culminated as a a real intersection of all of the things that I really believe in that the healthcare industry should move to. And that was kind of really why I moved away from pure operations of clinical trials into, okay, we do that, but it's a super old process. It's very well regulated. It's very well known, but it's not fit for purpose for what society needs. Yeah, And it's not fit for purpose for the fact that 
technology and understanding of disease has massively outpaced our treatments and are able to develop and our approach to health in general. And I mean, I think one of the big things that came out of COVID, I heard so many people say that it became too much of a buzzword for me is the health is your wealth. And to a certain extent, that is 100% correct. But right now, it's still a buzzword. It's talking, yeah. when people say that, they talk about it in a, okay, you've been fixed. So you were ill and now you've been fixed and therefore it's back. But to me, it was, well, why be broken in the first place? Why not start from the position of, let's not let you get sick first. And so for me, all of the clinical development stuff, all of the digital and data stuff is really leaning towards where I believe very wholeheartedly that the healthcare industry need to go. So that's kind of just me in from a work perspective in a nutshell. Uh, outside of work, I mainly work. That's probably <laughs> where we are. And I think, you know, people say, you know, if you if you get a job you love, you never work a day in your life. Yeah. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, well, I can always bullshit. Say that. <laughs> uh, that's all I have to say to that one. Or bollocks, depending on my mood at the time. <laughs> Because essentially what happens is you get a job that you love, you get passionate about it and you work all of the hours in the day. So it's really, this doesn't count. So yeah, I work an awful lot because I love what I do. I am working very hard on changing that perspective. I would like to move towards living and not just existing. Yeah. I have a cat who probably saved my sanity during COVID. Yeah. I live in Germany, so it was a very isolating experience to be away from friends and family. I have friends in Germany, obviously, but to be away from family and I come from quite a large Irish family so we are tend to be in each other's business quite a lot and to have been away from that and to have had several Christmases where my mother who is the Christmas fairy you could have sworn that the world had ended because oh. we weren't having Christmas properly to be away from that was quite isolating so to have a, a ginger cat who has one brain cell and is an absolute idiot but very entertaining probably saved my sanity which means he is far more spoiled than he should be but i mean it's a cat how badly can you spoil a cat <laughs> what? he's not gonna be grow he's not gonna grow up to be a dictator here uh, you're all good yeah and really that's kind of it i love to dive i'm a scuba diver oh really i'm a recently qualified dive master so i'm very proud of myself on that one which allows me to to assistant teach and and to to basically if i ever decide to give up any form of life science and pharma i can disappear off to the Caribbean and take tourists on nice. dive dive guides nice. tours so that's essentially what I do mostly in my spare time and I took that up even though I didn't want to but a friend of mine convinced me to learn to dive because they wanted to go on a boat trip in Indonesia a liveaboard dive trip in Indonesia and she said to me if you go on it makes our tickets cheaper <laughs> and I said I'm not sure how that works out for me because I wasn't planning on spending that money to start off with. But I'm a bit of a sucker for boats. I really enjoy being on a boat. And so it was a dive boat. It's a nice boat. I went on the boat and I had to learn to dive before I went. Absolutely petrifies me. Um, They're going under the... It's the Yeah, my husband was did it all yeah. when he was traveling and there's a qualified paddy. Yeah. Yeah, and and he goes, and I won't go with him. I'll stay, you know, when we're on holiday yeah. and stuff like that. And I just, I, I'm too scared. I honestly, if you'd have seen me learning to dive, you would have gone. <laughs> that girl's never going in the water. I learned to dive in Germany, so I live in Germany, and I learned to dive in Germany. And I live 
it, at that stage I lived in Frankfurt and as you can imagine there's no sea near Frankfurt a bit far to go to yeah. do your open water qualifications which yeah. you have to do outside of a swimming pool so in Germany you do them in a lake right now I don't like lakes. No. Lakes are slimy, muddy, and things touch in it that have been there for a long time. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of lakes. So I was not what you would... I was... I said I was very proficient. I was the world's best technical uh, instruction diver as a learner because I knew everything in the book. That wasn't a problem, but you put me into the lake and I <laughs> was having none of it. I was out. I, something touched my foot. It was gone. This was the end of it. I was not doing this. And I think if you'd watched me then to now, you would have been like, no, there's no, no chance she's ever diving. I'm also quite claustrophobic. And for me, I just immediately thought, no, I'm going to hate diving. That's going to make me feel claustrophobic. Yeah. I have an irrational fear of getting my shoulders stuck in a concrete pipe. It's irrational because I've never been in a concrete pipe. And <laughs> nor, nor would I go in a concrete pipe underwater. Yeah, anyway, so, but I, it turned out actually, I find diving, once I'm on, once I got over the initial, I don't like lakes issue, I find diving quite pleasant. I find it very meditative because I learned to dive in German and my German's not as good as my English. Right. So I have less words in, in <laughs> German. So when I'm underwater, I actually think in German. Oh. And because I know less words, I think less. And therefore, I find it very relaxing. And I'm also, I think what kind of claustrophobia issue was I'm blind in one eye. So I'm partially sighted. Right. And I've always been blind in my right eye. So I don't have 3D vision. Everything looks like The Simpsons to me. Everything's flat and 2D. Yes. Wow. And I, have you ever seen that episode of Father Ted where they go to the caravan? So basically, Ted and Dougal are in the caravan and they're explaining, Ted is explaining to Dougal why the toy cow is small. But the cow in the field also looks small. And he's saying to Dougal, this one's small and this one's far away. So trying to explain the difference. So that's essentially how I've gone through life is that one's far away. And if it's getting bigger, then it's getting closer. Uh, so then I actually, I worried that the vision would be an issue diving. And it turned out to be completely opposite. Everybody suffers with difference in depth perception in diving just because of the light refraction underwater. No. So I was busy going... This is just exactly the same as what I normally see. So, yeah. No way. Right, okay. We're totally digressing, aren't we, already? Yeah. So, talk to me about... You said, obviously, you're working an awful lot of the time because yeah. you're passionate about what you do. Tell me about your passions and your values and your the things that motivate you that keep you going doing what you do. Okay. I'm aware we only have a certain length of time, yeah. so I will <laughs> try and keep through that. I think one of the things that that I almost struggle with is that I it would my life would be a, so much easier if I had one very distinct passion as opposed to a spectrum of passions. Yeah. I think it's the best way to describe it. All of my my all of my passion is around healthcare and providing healthcare. And I mean and I always stress healthcare because I think at the moment the way the industry is set up and the way our society is set up is that we don't do health care, we do sick care. And for me, that is just not right. And I feel it's unethical as well to do it that way. So but kind of my overarching main passion is it's not about fixing something whenever there is an issue or an emergency. It's about how do we empower people with an understanding of their own health 
early warning system to address things before they become a problem so they can live people live their lives in the way that is most reflective of what they want to do so i'm a big believer in um, everybody having autonomous ownership of their own health data and i like the phrase you know autonomous ownership of your own health data to make decisions based on your life choices based on your your lifestyle and i think that's really important because i don't think we should have the right to dictate you know we can swing on the very on the other end of the spectrum and say you know well you're going to be penalized if you're a certain you know if you don't do a certain number of steps a day you're going to be penalized if you're a certain weight or you're going to be penalized i think we can swing far too far the other side of it and say you know, this is what health is. You must remain within that. And I don't believe that's what health is. I believe what health is about how people, and it is people because it's about everybody, how everybody can be empowered to be at a level in their lives that they can do the things that they love to do and that they can contribute in the way that they feel passionate about. Yeah. And so for me, that's super important. And how we do it is then suddenly when that spectrum breaks out for me and all of the different things become incredibly important. Like I'm hugely passionate about women's health. I'm massively passionate about preventative healthcare, yeah. early intervention. I'm a huge believer in how do we change the pharma industry so that we stop looking at reactive drugs and we look at early interventions. That's a change, an entire change in the business model of pharma because essentially you're then having to turn around and say, well, I need to convince you to start developing treatments that essentially, if they work, you never see that they work because you never see the progression in the patient. And so that that's a very hard sell to say to regulators as well. You know, this patient, this person could potentially develop this. So we're going to give them this so that they never develop it. Yeah. Cool. But you'll never know. You'll never know. So it's a really hard sell yeah. in that respect. But yes, yeah, so so it's a big wide spectrum of all the things that I'm really passionate about. So, okay. God, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? So is that then looking at digital health and what individuals, rather than saying the generic, this is how you have to do this number of steps, because it's not the same for everyone. So depending on how you want to live your life and the world that you live in, we need to move to preventative medicine yeah. that is entirely bespoke to each individual jein which is my favorite german word which means yes no at the same time I like that i think that in the utopian world yes we would be able to have and if we unpack exactly what you said there is the difference between the early interventions the actual therapies there's behavioral change there is managing risk factors and understanding and identifying risk factors and then there is the digital monitoring of people. So all of that, ideally, in the utopian world, would be delivered and micro and designed right down exactly to the individual. I'm slightly more realistic in that right now. I'm not entirely sure industrially we can do that, whether it is something that actually is a valid business model, because realistically i do have to sit between the the what is science fiction and what is a, a business is going to be able to sustain so how do we make those incremental changes where business is still available and still sustainable 
as we move towards this idea of whether it is 3D printing individual doses of your drug, whether it is understanding from longitudinal data collection points that different people are different metabolizers. So one drug might require 50% of the dose that in one person that it may require in another person. And one person might metabolize that drug better in the morning versus one person might do it better in the evening. And so that's, that is, you know, the level of personalization that I believe we can get to. Uh, I just don't think, I don't think we should attempt to boil the ocean immediately. We do need to go in, in small steps. I'd love to just go from one day to the next, from standard of care to, this is an entirely personalized journey for you. But I think convincing people to do that is probably going to be much harder than just me standing up and talking about how wonderful an idea <laughs> would be. So from that respect, yine. I'll take a yine. Yine. Okay. Yine. I quite like yine. Mm. I might adopt that. Yeah, do. It's a great word. It's a great <laughs> word. Uh, okay, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your move into independent life and independent work. So you were at Merck for a few years, Novartis, yep. Roche, yep. both for that. So very much the big pharma world. So talk to me a little bit about your decision to move away from that and what motivated that, really. Totally accidental. Not deliberate at all. Didn't mean to do it even slightly. <laughs> Thought I was having a holiday. <laughs> yep. It's in so, worst holiday ever. <laughs> yeah, it's the strangest holiday. So I, yes, like you said, I worked at Merck for six years and I left Merck at the end of December 2022. And purely because my ambition, and my passion, essentially, was not, I didn't, it wasn't aligned specifically with the company's strategic goals at that stage. So we very amicably parted ways at the end of December. And I said, right, okay. So I thought, right, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to find the right place. I want to find a home. So I'm very motivated by the environment that I work in and wanting to work in an environment where I feel like it's a home. I wanted a group of similarly engaged and ambitious and directioned kind of individuals that had a culture that I really wanted to buy in. So I kind of sat back and I thought, right, I had lots of conversations, I had lots of conversations. And I have to be very honest, I was getting more and more frustrated because I was having conversations with people and I'm, I've been incredibly fortunate in my career to have spanned quite a large chunk of the pharma value chain. I don't do manufacturing. Nobody asked me to do manufacturing. Don't know anything about it. And I'm quite happy to put my hands up and say, not my thing at all. But I've done research. I've done clinical development, large chunks of all of it. And I've sat within a commercial organization and I've worked on commercial teams. So I have the ability to kind of go between those three big chunks and I enjoy each of them without a shadow of a doubt I think where the massive values where they all link up so I was having these conversations with people talking about what my principles were and my thoughts were and my experiences were and I was getting the same message every time it was this is fantastic like, yes 100% we need your skill set we need your background we really want you we just have no idea where to put you and I said, what do you mean you'd no idea where to put you? Well, you know, you have so many skills that we just don't know what area to put you into. And I thought, yeah, this is the big problem. I don't really want to be in a box anymore. So you don't fit in a box. I don't fit in a box. And I've spent 17 years in the pharma industry 
squashing myself into that box and going, this is the only thing that makes me palatable is if I am willing to shrink myself down into a very defined role and be in a box. Mm. And I just, that was a massive realization. And so I'd given myself these three months and in the middle of January, I had a conversation with a tech company that I had just been chatting backwards and forwards with. And I'd become friendly with the CEO and they were quite big in financial data security. He had been at a couple of pharma conferences and we'd gone out for dinner and stuff and we'd chatted. I really like him. He's a really lovely guy and he's really passionate about data security and data privacy and how you use data to, to its fullest whilst protecting the data. So we'd been chatting around and he was really keen to get the company into healthcare and pharma industry. And he said, would you consider coming doing a project for us? A couple of months, three months, do a project. We'll pay you to have a look at our product to make suggestions about how that might be fitting into pharma and might be useful. And I said, that sounds fine. That sounds fun. And then suddenly I had five clients and I didn't know how I went from, I'll do this as a favor to a friend and because I like their product as well, to having clients going across the spectrum from data security to data acquisition for synthetic control arms of clinical trials to genomics testing for companion diagnostics to digital therapeutics company to an accelerator, a government-sponsored innovation accelerator. And suddenly I was like, oh, okay, I don't have to fit into a box right now because I can do all of the things that I like and I'm fulfilled in each of these individual companies. And that's okay right now. That's, yeah. That is where I'm stretched. I'm learning, which is super important to me. I'm challenged, which is also incredibly important to me. And I'm listened to, which I really like. Because what I find in pharma is if you voice an opinion on something that is not within your job description, even if you have the background in it, it's a little bit like, shh, not for you. This is not what you're brought in to talk about. You're brought in to talk about, this is what we've employed you to talk about. So being able to actually have people go, oh, right, okay, that's really useful information was a massive confidence boost in a way. It was a real validation of, okay, I'm not insane. I do actually vaguely know what I'm talking about in all of these different areas. And so it was, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It was completely accidental. Yeah. Whether it lasts forever and ever, I don't know. Probably not. But it was, it's something that, that gives me a lot of enjoyment at the moment. So it's working for you now. Yeah. So that's all that matters, really. Yeah. And I get to work with, I work with a lot of startups and I love startups because startups are shiny. Yeah. Startups are shiny and new and they still believe they can change the world. Yeah. Cynicism hasn't been beaten into <laughs> startups yet. And I love it because it's such a real refreshing moment of the world is, you know, the world is, everything is possible. Yeah. And I get completely swept up in that. And the energy you get out of working with startups and scale-ups is just incredible. And such a contrast from oh, yeah. the big pharma world. Yeah. yeah, I get that. Totally. So at the end of last year, you were <laughs> listed by Intelligent Health AI yeah. as one of their top innovators for 2022. Tell me a little about that. I mean, I know about as much about it as you do. You know, like like I said, I I presented or I did a lot of presenting at conferences last year, and 
because I was in the position at that stage that I was really passionate about moving forward and moving healthcare forward. And I'm, believe it or not, you know, because this will come as a complete and utter shock to you, I'm quite open with my opinions and I voice them. I know you would yes. never know. I'm so good at hiding it. But, you know, I'm, I'm quite open with my opinions and I, I, I will stand up and say what I think is right, what I think is moving forward. I do have my favorite slide at the start of every single one of my presentations is a disclaimer slide, which says I am not here representing anybody I work for or any academic institution that I'm affiliated with. All of these opinions are my own. And my final line on my slide is, and I reserve the right to change my opinion at any time when I've <laughs> learned something new. Because I think it's super important. Because everything within the field that we work in, everything is it's so new and everything is changing at all times. that You can't afford to have a fixed mindset. You can't afford to say, this is how I know it. This is the way it's going to be forever. I'm not going to deviate away from this. You need to go in with a constant evolution of this is going to change. It's going to change. I need to be available. I need to learn from it because I need to give the best that I can for everything. So yeah, I'm not afraid to be wrong. I don't mind being wrong. Sorry, this deviated from intelligent That's health. Okay. AI, yeah, but basically... I was doing a lot of presentations. <laughs> That's where we came back to. And I was obviously giving my opinion an awful lot. And what I have to say, and I'm going to be a little bit controversial here, and I do apologize for the people on these lists. I was having, it was in December of last year that I was named and I was having dinner with two friends of mine. And we were laughing because I think the day before the Forbes 40 under 40 list had been released mm -hmm. and somebody had been put on it and we were like, we know that person and they don't really know what they're doing. And that's a really interesting thing. And then there was the whole discussion about, oh, these lists don't really mean anything. A lot of the lists are you apply for them. Yeah. And, and you self-nominate or yes, or you pay for them as well. So we were having this, we were laughing. And literally the next day, I had a notification on my phone from LinkedIn and it was ping. You know, you've been tagged in this LinkedIn post. And I was like, oh, what post have I been tagged in by Intelligent Health? And I clicked on it and it was like top 55 list. And I screenshotted it and I sent it to the boys and I said, I swear I didn't apply for this. <laughs> I swear I had no idea this was happening. And it was just, it was so funny because it was the day after we'd had that exact conversation. So I have to say I was incredibly flattered. If you look at the list on, there are some incredible people on it. Would I have necessarily put myself amongst those? I wouldn't have even considered or thought about it, but I'm incredibly, incredibly flattered to have been considered amongst that list just for being for standing up and saying whatever it was in my head at the day at the time okay well let's talk more about what's in your head on the topic of ai then yeah. because we are in this huge period of change yeah. massive disruption from the generative ai coming in at the end of last year open open ai where do you what are your opinions that you stood up and shared around AI and how it can benefit pharma or perhaps the areas that we need to watch out for? What are your thoughts? Even more interesting is I would not classify myself as an AI specialist. I, I, don't, I, I don't proclaim to know that. I know how data can be leveraged to solve a problem. I don't know how it does, but I know that it can be leveraged. I know I can identify the problem. I can identify what I want the solution to look like. I'm not necessarily the one that connects the problem to the solution via 
the AI or the anything within that space. So I fully put my hands up and say there are people out there that are bigger, better and smarter than I am when it comes to AI. I think the opinion that I have had about AI for a long time is that, first of all, it's a tool. It's an incredibly valuable tool if it's used right. But most importantly, AI is only as good as the data that goes into it. And so for me, we can talk an awful lot about the sexy stuff and you can throw out AI, machine learning, you know, big data, blah, blah, blah. You can, all of the buzzwords that, to be frank, pharma love to throw around, love to throw around. But structurally, the data architecture, the data governance, the data quality, and the amount of data points that you have available to generate the outcome of the all of the AI you're using is equally valuable, but it's not as sexy. So some of the challenges that I've seen and faced in the past, and I do whenever I talk to startups and things, and they're trying to push these incredible solutions, and this is amazing, and I'm like, Whoa. let's dial it back a little bit. You don't want to essentially sink yourself and your credibility because at the end of the day, you are building models that people are going to make decisions of. And within healthcare, you're building models that are go- people are going to make either diagnostic decisions, prognostic decisions, you're affecting people's lives and their treatment off of the the algorithms and the products you build. And that's fantastic as long as they've been trained correctly, that there's enough data that it is actually statistically significant. And so start with that. Start with your data and the value and and the quality that comes out of that. The AI is the sexiness on the top. And it can do an ama- it can do amazing things, but rubbish in equals rubbish out, yeah. and that's the important thing as well that we tend to overlook. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. So, where do you think then? And I suppose in your role now as an advisor, when you're speaking to company, particularly in pharma and life sciences, where do you think the industry needs to focus on over the coming years? What do you think the priorities should be to get to the the vision that you hold in terms of that preventative healthcare. Yeah. I think, so first of all, I think that it will take more than just my thoughts on this. I yeah. think it will take an awful lot more from people. I'll split it into two ways. I think society needs to change and I think business needs to change. And one will always follow the other. And depending on where the money goes is which goes first. So are we going to demand better as people and as a society? Are we going to demand better from our healthcare? Are we going to demand the level of personalization that we have, personalization and digitalization that we have and have experienced from post post the last number of years? You know, I, I use the example of I love crappy Hallmark movies. I, Hallmark, rom-com, Christmas movies. On Netflix, I will watch every single one of them. And I know that. And I know I've watched every single one of them because my algorithm on Netflix shows me all the ones that I will want to watch. And you know what? I watch them. And it is makes me very happy because I can switch off my brain and I can watch all of the formulaic happy endings that are going to happen and everybody ends up having a lovely time and it's great. And I go away feeling a wee bit better because the world is lovely and nothing's challenged me in the hour and a half that I've sat down and actually relaxed for something. 
Now, Amazon and I have a very tumultuous relationship because they keep suggesting things for me and I keep buying them. So my bank account has fallen out (laughs) with Amazon on numerous occasions and my house is full of bits of pieces of stuff and I own more metal straws than any one single human should own. But yes, Amazon keeps suggesting products that I might like. And do you know what? Amazon is quite right. Very good at that. But why are we not demanding that from our healthcare? And this is for me is there are going to be two inflection points is either the world is going to turn around, stand up and say, stop dictating to me what healthcare looks like. Stop dictating to me what my treatment plan or pathway should be. This is what I want. Pharma talk an awful game on patient centricity, patient design, drug development and patient centered, all of that jazz. But at the end of the day, are they asking them to develop the drug that is going to actually fix the problem with the patient? Or are they asking the patient to essentially give them the validation about bits of the drug pathway that they can still develop the same drug, but say, but we talk to patients and patients want this. Mm. And, you know, that's got to change. That's really got to change. And I had a great conversation actually on Monday. I was in Basel and I was chatting to a Swiss hospital administrator. And he was talking about how they're trying to discourage more specialization. So they're trying to get more in as general practice because specialization becomes within the hospital system becomes quite expensive and they're always booked up and things like that. And he said, you know, we're really trying to look at how we change that around and look at how we, we make sure that we are delivering what patients need and and not just providing solutions to people because we're finding that sometimes the solutions we provide actually make the patient's condition worse and I said well I can understand that and he said but how can you understand that you know why does that make any sense we fixed something we've cured it and I said look I'm blind in my right eye and I have been since birth everything is 2d it would completely decimate my life if I suddenly have sight in my right eye Because I wouldn't know how my depth perception would be off. Everything would change. My view of the world would change. And I'm 37. It takes a long time to unlearn all of the things that I have learned at that stage. So my coping mechanisms would be completely off the chart and all over the place. What is important to me is not regaining or getting the sight in my right eye. What is important to me is preventing the loss in my left eye. Yeah. That's important to me. Not developing a cure or a treatment for my current vision, but preventing that changing. And so that's where we need to start looking at, is that push? Where does that initial push come from? Where pharma and drug development and therapeutic, I'm going to say therapeutic development, starts to shift towards what is the thing that the patient really wants and needs? And how do we look at, instead of, desperately trying to fix something like i've said how do we make sure that the standard of life and condition that the patient is used to likes and wants is maintained and if the money if the business models come into place where that is actually financially viable to do and whether it is pushed from regulators whether it's pushed from the government whether it is pushed from the consumers Hmm. i'm going to say something that a lot of people hate me saying we need to consumerize healthcare. And I don't mean in the way that 
it's consumerized like Apple or consumerized like Google or consumerized like you, you go to a supermarket and you buy whatever you want. That's not what I mean about consumerization. We need to treat patients as consumers, as the end users, because at the moment, that's not what healthcare with pharma does. A pharma's end users are the prescribers. And that's, you're taking away the power and the ownership from the end users. And the end users are the patients. So they're the ones that actually have to take the medication that is designed for them, take the therapeutics that are designed for them. So they should have a say and in what what is developed for them. They should have a say in how that makes them feel, how they're affected by it. We need to consumerize health and treat the patients as having the power to determine what is their view of health and to determine how they want to live their life. Yeah. It's almost like, so pharma is always set up to be B2B, isn't it? Yeah. And it's B2C, really, yeah. when you talk about it like that, it is. It's actually you're focusing on an individual, not an organisation. Yeah. yeah, that makes so much sense. So you are a sports fanatic. Tell me a little bit about that. And more importantly, tell me how on earth you balance that in your life. Okay, so that's super. I'll start with the second part of it. Currently, I don't balance it. It's the age-old question of, you know, how do you develop a work-life balance? And people ask me, what is my work-life balance? And I say, yes, I have a work life. <laughs> yeah, and then I stop. And like I said earlier on, that, ne that massively needs to change. And I am a believer of that myself. I'm really trying to put in place that and I'm going to say I'm going to commit to something and I'm going to commit to it on a recording yes so I can't go back on it and I'm going to I'm really going to live to regret this but I'm going to have to do it I'll get to that in a second but yeah I'm really trying to commit to living rather than existing and living in the moment I'm a nightmare when it comes to planning things I plan everything down to the nth degree I have spreadsheets I have more spreadsheets than anyone human in the world should ever have I love spreadsheets. And I mean, to the extent where I keep a birthday and Christmas present spreadsheet and have done for years. Oh my God, I love that. And I add people to it. And during the year, I just go through and if I see something that I think someone might like, I put it on the spreadsheet. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. And when God. I go places, I plan everything. I love this. Oh, <laughs> it's not good though. Because I shouldn't love it, but I do. But what I noticed over the last, I was fine with up until the last couple of years. When I noticed that I wasn't enjoying the thing as I was doing it, I was busy going, yep, okay, come up. We need to go to the next thing because it's planned into the schedule that we do the next thing at the next time. We're running behind. I was running everything, like project meetings. <laughs> like I was going on a holiday with people going, okay, come on, next. Let's go. Dinner's booked at seven. It's 6.53. Come on, it's a seven minute walk. Let's go. So, and I just, I wasn't enjoying where I was at the moment, yeah. in the moment. And so that's something that, I'm working to try and fix. I To do that, I'm doing things like I've just got the most incredible new apartment. So I move house next month. Why I thought that was a good idea in the middle of starting up an independent consultancy company, I don't know. But I decided that was what I was going to do. And I've got a beautiful new apartment. I'm really excited to get in. It's going to... It's just going to make me... It's going to make my life better. And it's going to be fun and quirky and... I'm going to have plenty of space for guests. I'm going to have plenty of space for a, an office that I can work in comfortably. And not that I'm ever in it because I'm traveling all the time, but, you know, I'll build a cat corner for the cat and it'll be fine. And I'll, but I'll feel like a home. I'll feel like I've really settled in a home as opposed to a house because I live in houses. And I think 
for the last number of years, I've really lived in houses. I've existed in houses as opposed to living in a home. So I'm building my own home, a little nest of comfort and happiness. And I'm going to buy myself a pink smeg fridge as my, oh my God. reward. I'm <laughs> so excited. So yes, that's essentially my answer to that. I don't have a work-life balance at the moment, but I'm working on it. With regards to sport, and this is where I'm going to commit to something. I was just going to say, what are you going to commit to? I'm going to commit to something. I've played sport. Uh, I love sport. I liked it because I'm highly competitive. Um, highly competitive. For a very long time, we weren't allowed to play board games as children. Because it because we were too competitive and it always ended in a row. <laughs> so I didn't really, so I didn't really grow up. And we didn't play cards. Like, And when I dive on the dive boat, in between dives, you tend to play cards. I knew Snap. <laughs> And that was pretty much the end of my card knowledge. And I've had to be taught card games. And I am the worst card player. I, I, I both love and hate rules. And I enforce <laughs> them like nobody's business. I'm like, no, you've cheated. No, it's, you're not allowed it. No. So I'm super competitive, hyper competitive. So I did. I played a lot of sport as a kid because I could be competitive. And I played sport and I played rugby. I played rugby at a time in Northern Ireland where rugby for girls is only just taking off. And I was a complete and utter enforcer on the pitch. So I, I, I'm i tall and I'm broad, I'm very strong. I Running into me was like running into a brick wall. <laughs> and I was, when I started running, I'm actually, at the time, I'm, I was deceptively quick. Nobody really thought when I started to trundle that it was actually going to go anywhere at speed, but I'm deceptively quick and and I'm like a freight train. I'm completely not a runaway freight train. I'm very <laughs> difficult to stop on a rugby pitch. I haven't played rugby in a number of years because I, I ended up being quite badly injured and broke my ankle quite badly, but I, I just loved sport. I loved being part of a team. I loved, I loved being good at something. I think that was really, I, I excelled at sport, so I enjoyed it. And yeah, so I, 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 it was such... A serious part of my identity for a very long time as well that when and I'd made a commitment so I played rugby I was involved in athletics I I competed an awful lot so loved it and then I after I broke my ankle I was sent by my physio at the time to do CrossFit and he said to me normally I would not send you to do CrossFit I don't agree with CrossFit CrossFit's not good CrossFit bad but it's very bad for people who are injured and it's very bad for people who are injured and hyper-competitive. But I don't trust you on your own to not do something stupid because you'll get bored. And my physio knew me very well. And he said, I'm sending you to CrossFit in Cambridge. At that stage, I was living in Cambridge. I'm sending you to CrossFit because my brother works there and my best friend owns it and I have warned them about you. <laughs> I have to say, he really did warn them because they watched me. <laughs> I was not allowed to do anything that wasn't specifically prescribed by him. But again, I loved it because I was really strong. Now, could I do a pull-up? No. Could I? Did I want to do a burpee? No. Did I have any interest in ever doing a muscle-up? Not even no. slightly. Weightlifting? Excelled at it immediately. Yeah. I'm strong. So it, to me, that was like, fun, great. I'm good at this. Yeah. So I'm topping the leaderboard, which means it's seriously motivating for me. And so I really got into the weightlifting side of things and I started to train quite seriously about it. And I thought, because I like to have a goal, I thought, well, not many weightlifters in Northern Ireland. There are now, there's a much, much bigger weightlifting community in Northern Ireland there were, than there were at that stage. And I thought, I can maybe train for the Commonwealth Games and see if I can try and qualify for the Commonwealth Games. 
And so I did until COVID hit. And then I was trapped inside my apartment working 17 hour days. And I just thought, look, I love this, but even I have to admit that I, I could continue to try and force this through, but it's just not going to work. I can't commit to that level of training. And so I kind of had to give up on that. But my big commitment now, because I always have a goal and I know you're watching me with... I cannot wait very for this. Excited. In my lunacy, I have decided... I decided this about two years ago and I have done absolutely nothing towards it as yet. Right. But I have decided that before my 40th birthday, I would like to swim the channel. Oh my God, amazing. Yeah. So I've... yeah. I'm you need to firm this up now. Yeah. I need you, to commit to it. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. to it. Yeah, because so, you just said you'd like to. I'd like to. I, I, oh. I'm going to firm you up. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you you're going to commit to it. Yeah, it gives me three years it does. to swim the channel. Yeah. So you're going to do that? Yes. You are going to swim the channel. Yes. By what year then? What are we? 20, 2025. 20, 20, 20, 2025. Yeah. Okay. So it's really just two and... Shh. Three. <laughs> three. Two and a half. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Or swim it in my 40th year, which can be up to 2025 to okay. 2026. Well, if you get sponsorship or anything like that or want any support on that i am here for this now because you have put your you have laid it down on this show so i will support you anybody, who, you anybody who wants to sponsor me and laugh at an ex-rugby player who should not be swimming the channel swimming the channel please feel free to do so i will gladly set up some form of we instagram page yeah. of mockery of myself and even happily. if i have to add it to the show notes retrospectively we will do that now <laughs> if you would like to see <laughs> yeah, if you'd like to see this really not work very well but go for it tune in tune in <laughs> but please pay me lots of money <laughs> it'll definitely need to be for a charity and i think it's quite a it's quite a financial endeavor to actually swim the channel because I did a bit of looking into it originally and you have to do things like hire safety crews and boats and things like wow. that to follow you so, wow, you know, yeah, you don't drown or be hit by a tanker. Yeah. Those are two very important things <laughs> to avoid. Yeah, yeah do, don't get hit by yeah. a tanker. No. It's not worth that. Definitely wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't reach France by that stage. So, so how are you going to fit that into your life now then? <laughs> when we're talking about, let's go back to work-life balance. Yeah. yeah. How are you going to make that work? Uh, that's... It's another commitment. You're going to need make. an Excel spreadsheet. Oh, there's 100% an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. The new apartment that I've got is a three-minute cycle away from an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Nice. So I think I'm going to need to spend an awful lot of time in the Olympic-sized sw swimming pool. Do you know what's terrifying and what's hideous? And you're going to love this. I'm going to have to swim in lakes. Oh, no. Yes, I am going to have to swim in lakes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you are. Um, there's no going away from no. that and I'm going to have to and I, because I am a nightmare in that I very proficient in the breaststroke but and I'm very good at 50 metres front crawl because mm. I can't breathe mm. but I can get 50 metres without having to breathe That's so I can good. get to the other end of the pool but then I'm like now I'm dead <laughs> so I'm going to need to get so anybody out there who knows a good swimming coach that could teach me to front crawl Okay. For endurance swimming. Get in I touch. Get in touch. I will take any <laughs> yes. I will take any advice from anybody. Preferably advice that is useful. That would be good. Yeah, not just don't do it. Don't. <laughs> I mean, you can give me that advice, but I'm pig-headed enough to go, well, that's just made me want to do it. Yeah, so any advice that anybody can give on that, I think. Yeah. 
it's well received. Yes. Okay, well, you are being held to that now, you know that, don't Fantastic, yeah. Okay, just so you're aware right. of that. Okay. Okay, so when we first spoke, you told me that you were the quiet kid when you were in school, or you were quite reserved in school. Is that right? I think I was quite, no, I, I think I was the daydreamer. I think that's what I, I said. I spent a lot of time in my own head at school. I would love to know... I don't really, I'm not super close to the people I went to school with any longer. I'm much closer to people I went to university with. At that stage, I kind of felt a little bit more me. Yeah. I can't say I loved school very much. I loved the academic side of it. I really loved the learning side of it. I didn't necessarily love the environment that I was in. Politics. I know, politics, and then I went into pharma. Yeah, that's less politics. I don't know. I just, I didn't love school. You know, some people say, you know, school days, the best days of your life. No, not for me. Thanks very much. I'm good. I'd rather never go anywhere near it ever again. So I don't know what other people's perception of me was at school, but my self-perception at school was that I spent a lot of time in my head and I kind of just, I wouldn't have said I was popular. I wouldn't have said I was unpopular. I just kind of drifted between kind of different friend groups again. No box. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I drifted between the academic crowd and the sports crowd and Bent a lot, like I said earlier on, I was in the school choir, I was involved in school musicals quite a lot, so I kind of drifted between all types of different groups within school, and yeah, I probably didn't, I don't think I came into myself, I don't think I came into knowing and myself as a human being and being comfortable in my own skin until I was probably in my early 30s anyway, so I think my self-perception of me at school was probably that I wasn't massively happy and I just didn't really want to be there an awful lot of the time and so I daydreamed a lot because I could escape inside my own head and think about things yeah yeah I get that do you still are you still involved with singing now do you do any are you in a choir or anything mother to say that I do an awful lot more because she likes to remind me that they spent a fortune on singing lessons for me I do still sing yes I Part of my work-life balance yeah. is to find a choir in Germany that I can join. When I lived in Basel, I lived in Basel for about seven years. I was very involved in the Basel English Theatre Group, which is a fantastic group. And we did Rent, and I was involved in that. And I got involved in the Panto Society as well. Oh my God, amazing. So, and I loved Panto because it was just completely off the wall. Yeah. And we had a, a couple of years we had a really good musical director and who was willing to do things a little bit so a little bit off the wall and there was another guy there at the time actually Anthony who's he's really good at, at talent acquisition for a nutrition company but at that stage he was doing he, he took some time off to go and do a master's in musical theatre in London and so he and I were kind of batting backwards and forwards what we could potentially do that was fun and we ended up doing he played the Panto Dame and we ended up doing the song from Spamalot uh, in, in the break while they were you know, changing the scenery behind the curtain and things like that. And including he, we got very over enthusiastic at one stage and he spun me off the stage and I ended up like falling into the orchestra pit. But yeah, I haven't done it. I haven't had a chance or kind of done it since I lived in Basel and I'd really like to do it again because... It's, I think it's another facet of me that kind of needs to be exercised. Otherwise it gets a bit yeah. get itchy. So 
My poor neighbours in my current apartment have heard me sing opera at the top of my lungs at 11am in the morning or 8pm at night and I have to say, bless German engineering that the insulation is very good in German apartments. So we just have to see how good the insulation is in the new apartment. (laughs) (laughs) I don't make enemies in, in the new apartment. So if you could then go back, well, so there's a couple of questions now that I've got to ask you before we wrap up and they're very much in line with what we were just talking about. So if you were to go back to the girl in high school yeah. before when, as you say, you weren't really who you want, who you ended yeah. up to be, what advice would you go back and give yourself if you could, knowing everything you now know? I think what I would probably say is stop beating yourself up. I very self hypercritical or self critical. Yep. I would probably say to her, to you know what? You are focusing on things and freaking out about things and having anxiety and stressing yourself out about things that other people haven't actually A noticed or B cared about or C remembered. So stop beating yourself up about things. You know, if you think you've done something really bad, go and speak to the person. Have the guts to go and say to the person, I'm really sorry, I think I hurt you or I think I screwed up or I don't really know. And instead of being defensive or just stressing about it, just address it. I think my the biggest learning I have is that if you just nip it in the bud before you end up stressing about it, it's a much, much healthier way of dealing with things because they may turn around and be like, actually, no, I have no idea, <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. Or, oh, that? Well, it was a throwaway comment. I didn't even pay attention or I didn't take it to heart. Yeah. But I think I, I probably would say, Nip it in the bud, don't stress about things and be open to apologise. Yeah. I think that's super important. Just say, look, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean it. It doesn't excuse it, but I'll do my best to be better. Other than that, I probably wouldn't. I would love to say, you know, don't let yourself be put into a box. Or I think the perception I felt, the perception of me in school or what I self-perceived that other people may have perceived about me kind of wasn't who I was I'd love to say don't put yourself in a box and don't feel that way but at the end of the day you need to learn those lessons yeah you need to learn your own boundaries you need to learn your own principles your own integrity and I don't think I could have done that and I don't think I would be who I am now without having learned all that yeah yeah no fair enough so the final question I have for you is about the movie Sliding Doors now I know you said you haven't seen it, which actually now, having spoken to you about your love for rom-com movies, I, know. And I can't believe you're going yes, to have to watch it. Or made by the Canadian Film Board, because I'm very, very niche in my crappy rom-com movies <laughs> yeah, okay. that I enjoy to watch. Fair enough. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> in all honesty, I have no idea. Okay, so very quick overview of the movie. Gwyneth Paltrow, it's probably early 90s, this movie. She goes out one day to work, as she does every day, nine to five, goes to get on the train. She's running a little bit late. I can't remember why, to be honest. I really should revisit the movie. <laughs> but anyway. I'll watch it so let you know what else. Do tell me I'll probably even get it all wrong when I tell people <laughs> what the whole premise of the movie is this. Totally wrong. Uh, so she goes to get the train. She misses the train and the doors slide across in front of her. She then turns around and goes home and finds her husband's been cheating on her. And her whole life, she ends up getting divorced. and So she lives her life entirely differently to the one she would have lived had those doors not closed on her at that time. 
So the whole point is around pivotal moments in your life. And are there any that stand out to you where you sometimes think I could have lived an entirely different life and I've gone a totally different route? I think probably, I would say there are probably two big ones for me. The first one was moving from Belfast to Switzerland Yeah. at the end of my undergraduate degree. Think if I had stayed in Belfast, my trajectory would have been completely different, massively different. I would have been a completely different person. I probably would have had a smaller outlook on life. And I don't mean a more small minded. I just mean a more geographically localized outlook on life. I probably, Northern Ireland at that stage, you had, and a couple of my cousins refer to me as Chandler Bing because they haven't a clue what I do. <laughs> but Northern Ireland at that stage, I remember when we did careers at school and they were looking at what you should be doing. And it was basically doctor, dentist, nurse, teacher, lawyer, civil servant. Anything outside of that didn't exist as a career. That was not a thing. So to have done, gone down the pathway that I had probably would have just been completely bizarre it just I know it was bizarre it just wasn't the norm and I know an awful lot of people within my kind of generation of Northern Ireland have done some really very cool weird and wacky things and I'm incredibly proud of everybody who did the thing that made them happy and didn't necessarily worry and don't get me wrong the people who went doctor dentist nurse teacher civil servant lawyer brilliant yeah fantastic if that is what they want to do and they exactly lived their life and exactly what they wanted you know hats off to you fantastic I do not in any way mean to belittle those choices at all it's just that to come from a very conservative culture in Northern Ireland and one that was not necessarily known for breaking out doing weird and crazy things it makes me incredibly happy to see people from Northern Ireland be represented as boundary breakers or as really pushing the boundaries of things. And there's a huge amount going on in health tech in Northern Ireland at the moment, which is very exciting to see. And I get so proud because Northern Ireland's an incredible place and it's it breeds a type of person that is very singular and, and pretty special, to be honest. And there's a sense of humour there that you don't find anywhere else in the world. And I'm very proud to be from Northern Ireland and from Belfast. I'm very proud of the people who are doing things on a world stage because it's such a tiny place as well to see people go out and do things on a world stage that are incredible. It really does make me incredibly proud to be Northern Irish. But I think that if I'd have stayed there at the time, I would have... Very different. They're very different. I probably would have ended up married. There probably would have been children. Yeah. Which is, to me, not super alien. Like, it's a super alien concept. Because I like children, but I couldn't eat a whole one. Yeah. And, and they're fine with me. But I like them when they look like a potato because they don't really do anything. And I like them when you can start to rationalize with them. Yeah, it's um, the in-between bit. It's the in-between bit when they're yeah. sticky and noisy. No, I'm good, thanks. I'm totally good, thanks. So I think that would have been a very different life for me if I'd stayed there. So that was kind of inflection point number one. And inflection point number two, I think, is this year. I think in five, ten years, I'll be able to tell you what that meant in my life and what I did and how it was different. Yeah. But I think that to, to basically walk away, don't get me wrong, I really enjoy being independent. It's great at the moment, but days when I'm busy going, well, I'm going to live under a bridge because nobody's going to pay me. 
you know yourself, you know, you. you know yourself that you suddenly go, oh, it's so really it's, scary. It's really yeah. scary. It's super scary. So I, at the moment, I'm still living in the day to day. Bridge. Hug. No bridge. Hug. Bridge. <laughs> no bridge. It's okay. So I think, you know, in five years time, when I can look back on it with a little bit of distance and a little bit of perspective, I'll be able to say, okay, now, <laughs> right. Now I see what an impact that made on my life. So those are, I would say, probably the two big yeah. inflection points. So first thing I would say is I think the Northern Irish thing is why we are in the same room rather than over the phone because all my dad's family is all from Northern Ireland. My ma, who I love to pieces, Northern Irish. So yeah, I am totally with you in terms of the type of people the Northern Ireland breeds. The other one is I, I like to think that in about five years time, you'll be saying that your pivotal moment was doing this podcast when you realised that you had to then swim the channel short attention span forgotten that one bit already <laughs> right. uh, but i think that brings us to the end of the of the episode cool thank you so much for coming on the show it has been incredible to meet you in person i cannot wait to hear about you swimming the channel <laughs> It's a lot of pressure. I know. I've done that to myself. You totally yeah. have. Yeah. And I've just gone right in there. Yeah. Haven't I? You are not going to forget that time. To be able to. No, it's my claim no to fame. The podcast. Okay. I'm taking it. No, seriously. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It was a real pleasure to chat. And yeah, I'm really very appreciative to be considered amongst some of the women that you have interviewed previously. There's some incredible people on that list. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And let's go do some karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> and that is it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, you can now also join This Girl Cam as a member, where you'll get invited to join recording sessions, regular mentions on the show, and discounted or free tickets to some live events. To find out more, head to patreon.com thisgirlcam. Finally, go to thisgirlcam.com to subscribe to the show and get notified first about every new episode. You can also find every interview I've done in print and find out who my guest is for the following week. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, all under This Girl Cam. Thanks again, everyone. For now. <laughs>